This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Counterspin, A Best of the Left Activism Update, Le Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Green News Report, The Progressive, and interviews from on the ground at the Tar Sands Blockade in Texas. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode refers to discredited fringe science as discredited fringe science. CEO of ExxonMobil essentially um, talking about climate change, speaking at the Council for Foreign Relations, (laughs) said uh, this in giving a major address, that climate change is not as serious as lazy journalists and an illiterate public believe. He has admitted there is a correlation between climate change and the burning of fossil fuels. He just thinks it's not going to be that big of a deal. He claims to be working with a very good team at MIT for more than 20 years on this area of modeling the climate. In other words, predicting the implications of climate change. And he says, the competencies of the models are not particularly good. However, MIT's Ronald Prin disagrees. He says, the models are certainly good enough to clearly show the benefits of mitigation policies compared to no policy. In lowering risk, we cannot wait for perfection in climate forecasts before taking action. Is it any surprise that there is no model out there as to what happens when for the first time in human history, man has the capacity to affect global climate change. And these models will not be able to tell you exactly what's happening. All we can see is a rise in incidences and measurements that are consistent with, even if you look back onto uh, to NASA's predictions from... Uh, from the mid-80s. The consequences of a misstep in a well, speaking about fracking, according to the ExxonMobil CEO, while large to the immediate people that live around that well, in the great scheme of things, are pretty small. Of course, it depends on what's around that well. So he's basically saying, look, yes, So we screw up some people's water supply. But it's not that big of a deal. They can get bottled water. I mean, it seems to me this is a pretty good case that we shouldn't put um, any fracking wells anywhere near any large water supplies in the country, at the very least. And as far as the immediate people, eh, suck it. And then ultimately, Tillerson said uh, that humanity would simply adapt. We have spent our entire existence adapting, okay? So we'll adapt to this. It's true. I don't think this is, I don't think anybody has projected an end to humanity. What we are likely to see is an end to the way that our, our civilizations are organized if we start having, let's say, um, Massive new areas where it's impossible to grow food. Massive areas where it may be impossible to live in any sustained um, measure. New uh, changes in the ecosystem. Massive migrations of people to more northern climates. The The strain on resources that that will cause We'll adapt. In the meantime, ExxonMobil will continue to make huge profits. Man, they, these guys don't even realize what kind of douchebags they sound like in public. It's impressive. It's impressive, but not in a good way. I'm looking for a place where it's clean and hardly dirty. A place where I can breathe some clean, fresh air. I love the mountains of my home, but they've been mistreated badly. And I wish that more people would care. 
A Time magazine editor once explained that, of course, the magazine's feature on saving the planet wouldn't include anything on auto pollution since Ford Motor Company was the sole sponsor. And as he put it, you don't run ads for airlines next to stories about crashes. Well, you'd think that kind of awkward juxtaposition would have been a problem for the Washington Post, which on July 9th allowed a big piece on the highly controversial Keystone XL pipeline to share the page with an equally big advertisement for Chevron. As it turns out, though, there was no cause for concern since Juliet Alperin's article is all about what supporters of the pipeline project in the state of Montana are saying. Politicians, academics, and labor leaders, we learn, are all behind the project. One critic has heard from, a farmer, but she says she would support it if it were exclusively for the benefit of a local oil field. Well, does Keystone really need a story devoted to the views of pipeline supporters? It doesn't seem like it. A recent Media Matters study showed that pipeline proponents far outnumber critics in the press. And that's not counting the amplification of their message they get through paid ads like the one in the Post. Nevertheless, the Houston Chronicle reports that the energy industry is revving up a new PR campaign, apparently hoping to run up the score in a debate they're already winning, at least in the corporate news. Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the activism czar at bestoftheleft.com. This spring and summer has produced record-breaking temperatures all over the country. Yet despite irrefutable evidence, global warming continues to present as an abstract problem, far removed from the daily socioeconomic concerns of everyday Americans. And as progressives, we know the real issue is no longer a question of debating whether or not climate change is occurring, but how to find tangible ways of dealing with the matter, be it through grassroots activism and finding ways to reduce and end destructive waste and emission pollution through unsustainable global energy practices and consumption. This is why the folks at Energy Action Coalition and the Power Shift Campaign believe so strongly in the capacity of our youth. Through working with hundreds of campuses, along with dozens of youth groups, a network of environmental activism has taken hold. Young people are now leading the way in winning local environmental victories and coordinating actions on state, regional, and national levels across the United States and Canada. So here's what you can do to continue to help. Please go to wearepowershift.org slash campaigns slash climate SOS or use the Twitter hashtag climate SOS. From Appalachia to the Northern Plains to Texas and Washington, D.C., these folks are on the ground working with young people and community organizations to unite the surge of direct actions that are confronting the fossil fuel industry head-on. Each of these actions have a different focus, from stopping mountaintop removal to halting the frack attack, but together they form a summer of solidarity, a nationwide escalation against the injustices of fossil fuel extraction, and a citizen uprising, squarely confronting the culprits of the climate crisis. With fall just around the corner, it's time to kick it back into gear and get ready to bring these actions home to your campus and your community. So if you're a young person and want to make a difference, this is your chance to take part. Join the Summer of Solidarity Surge now. This has been a Best of the Left Activism Update. For more information about the link in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. 
Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Well, you tell me whether it's good news or bad news. I think it's a little of both. Both. Carbon dioxide emissions have risen by even more than previously thought, according to new data analyzed by the British newspaper The Guardian, casting doubt on whether the world can avoid dangerous climate change. The data emerged as governments met in Rio at that uh, conference. Global carbon emissions from energy are up 48% compared to 1992 when the original Earth Summit took place in Rio. You remember that? That did such good work. In 2010, the latest year for which figures have been compiled, the Energy Administration, the Energy Information Administration here in the U.S., said the world emitted 31.8 billion tons of carbon from energy consumption, a climb of 6.7% over the year before, significantly higher than the previous best estimate made by the International Energy Agency last year. Increases in fossil fuel use of this magnitude are likely to carry the world far beyond the temperature rise of 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit by 2050 that scientists have estimated is the limit of safety beyond which climate change is likely to become nasty and irreversible. According to the new EIA data, not to be confused with the IAEA, carbon dioxide emissions from the United States have resumed their rise after a brief blip caused by, you know, the financial crap. That increase came despite the much-vaunted switch from coal to shale gas with its lower emissions than coal. China, which in 2006 took over the U.S.'s historical lead as world's biggest emitter, raced to get ahead in 2010, up 15% over the previous year, and a 240% increase since 1992. China alone is responsible now for about one quarter of global carbon emissions from energy, emitting about 48% more than the U.S. This backs up recent evidence. China may be emitting more carbon dioxide than had previously been thought. thought, thought. But, you know, if they got a Fill those toys with lead somehow. The ancient reserves of methane gas seeping from the melting Arctic ice cap told researchers what they already knew. As the permafrost thaws, there is a release of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas that causes climate warning. warming. The trick was figuring out how much, said Jeff Clanton, professor of oceanography at Florida State. His team, whose findings were published in Nature Geoscience, documented a large number of gas seep sites in the Arctic where permafrost is thawing and glaciers receding. Until recently, the frozen soil and ice served to plug up or block these vents, these seep sites, but thawing conditions have allowed the conduits to open and deep geologic methane now escapes. But a team of scientists have drilled holes through an Antarctic ice shelf, the Fimbul ice shelf, Fimbul, with an F, to gather the first direct measurements regarding melting of the shelf's underside, a group of elephant seals. Now, you got to feel sorry for them. Are they elephants or are they seals? Do they remember or just blubber? Outfitted with sensors that measure salinity, temperature, and depth, added fundamental information to the scientist's data set, which led the researcher to conclude that parts of eastern Antarctica are melting at significantly lower rates than predicted by current models. And they're too thin anyway. It has been unclear until now how much warm deep water rises below the ice shelf. Previous ocean models have predicted temperatures and melt rates that are too high, suggesting a significant mass loss in this region that is actually not taking place as fast as previously thought, said the lead author of the study from the Norwegian Polar Institute. So, maybe not as fast warming, at least in that part of the Antarctic. But, (laughs) and here we go again, at nearly four feet tall, the emperor penguin is Antarctica's largest seabird. If global temperatures continue to rise, however, the emperor penguin in Terre Adélie, in East Antarctica may eventually disappear, according to a new study led by researchers from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, published in Global, China, Global Change Biology. 
Over the last century, we've already observed the disappearance of the Dion Islet's penguin colony close to the West Antarctic Peninsula, says lead author of the new study. Uh, the decline in those penguins, says the author, may be connected to a simultaneous decline in Antarctic sea ice due to warming temperatures in the region. Unlike other seabirds, emperors breed and raise their young almost exclusively on sea ice. They also fool around, as we learned a couple of weeks ago. If that ice breaks up and disappears early in the breeding season, massive breeding failure may occur. First analyses of the longest sediment core ever collected on land in the Arctic, published this week in Science, provide dramatic, quote, astonishing, unquote, documentation that intense warm intervals, warmer than scientists thought possible, occurred there over the past 2.8 million years. We're not the first, maybe. These extreme interglacial warm periods correspond closely with times when parts of Antarctica were ice-free and also warm, suggesting strong inter-hemispheric climate connectivity, say the project's three co-chief scientists. The polar regions are much more vulnerable to change than once believed, they add. And the U.S. lead scientist says, what we see is astonishing. We had no idea we'd find this. It's astonishing to see so many intervals when the Arctic was really warm, enough so forests were growing where today we see tundra and permafrost. And the intensity of warming is completely unexpected. The other astounding thing is we were able to determine that during many times when the West Antarctic ice sheet disappeared, we see a corresponding warm period following very quickly in the Arctic. So, what was happening then? Carbon capture and storage won't work, according to a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, because underground earthquakes are certain to cause the carbon to be released too soon. That's the gloomy prediction of a group of Stanford University scientists and a blow to those who seek an engineered response to climate change. People around the world are using today as a day of action in fighting climate change. Hundreds of environment campaigners gathered in Edinburgh today. On March 24, 1989, an oil tanker hit a reef off the coast of Alaska. The ship spilled more than 11 million gallons of crude oil into Prince William Sound, killing fish and birds and coating the beaches in very sticky, toxic black gunk. Responders went to work with the same technology they had used for decades and are still using now. The always uninspiring and occasionally just useless boom. Also, industrial paper towels. The oil industry's low-tech answer when things go oops. After the 1989 spill, Exxon set to work scrubbing the name off the wrecked ship itself. The following year, they rechristened the Exxon Valdez the Exxon Mediterranean. And then it became the Sea River Mediterranean. And then the SR Mediterranean, just for short. And then just the plain old Mediterranean. By 2008, Exxon had sold the Exxon Valdez to a company that named it the Dongfang Ocean. Then it had a collision with another ship, which left the old Exxon Valdez fit only for scrap metal. Then the ship was sold again and renamed again, and I kid you not, they renamed it the Oriental Nicety. The Oriental Nicety? Yeah, which we all know is actually the Exxon Valdez, uh, will now be sailing into a shipbreaking yard off the western coast of India over the protests of environmentalists who say the ship has asbestos and heavy metals on board and it's too dangerous to break up. But thanks to a new ruling from India's Supreme Court, that's where it's going to be turned into scrap. The Exxon Valdez is finally going away, turned into a pile of junk metal, even as Thousands of gallons of the oil it once carried still persist to this day on the Alaska coast. The Fortune Global list of the 500 richest companies in the world just recently came out again. Of the top 10, seven of them are oil companies. Exxon alone made $41 billion in pure profit just last year. Wow. 
Oil companies are almost as great at making money as they are terrible at cleaning up their messes when things go wrong. Just about exactly two years ago, a pipeline ruptured along Michigan's Kalamazoo River. The company that owned the pipeline had ignored cracks and corrosion in that pipe for five years. When the pipe finally and perhaps inevitably gave out, the company did not respond or even realize anything had gone wrong for 17 hours after it broke. By that time, more than 800,000 gallons of tar sands oil had spilled into the river. Tar sands oil is not like regular crude oil. It sinks. It doesn't float on the top, it sinks, and it sank to the bottom of the Kalamazoo. So the company spent two years trying to invent new ways to clean this up, trying to figure out how to shake this crud loose from the bottom of the riverbed so they could try to wipe it up on the surface with the old bad technology. The name of that company, the company that owned that pipeline and trashed the Kalamazoo River, uh, is Enbridge. The federal government fined Enbridge more than $3 million, which is roughly lunch money for a company with annual revenue in the hundreds of millions. Two years after Enbridge's disaster on the Kalamazoo River, two years almost to the day, look at what's happened now. Another Enbridge pipe has burst, this time in Wisconsin. The spill happened on Friday uh, in a field. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporting, quote, one horse and one cow in the pasture apparently were the only eyewitnesses to the geyser that sprayed up oil a thousand feet southwest of the pipeline. Along with the horse and the cow, Enbridge noticed this time that something had gone wrong, so they did shut off the pipeline. The Washington Post says, though, that even so, six very large tanker trucks worth of oil spilled out. And that was not even the only spill in Wisconsin this month. A couple of weeks ago, a pipe carrying gasoline spilled 54,000 gallons of gas. The spill got into wells that people use for drinking water, although they won't be doing that anymore. All of this is happening while state regulators try to get some accountability from a company that spilled coal ash into Lake Michigan back in October. Energy companies are, are good at making money. They are bad at cleaning up their mistakes. And because they are so good at making money, it can be difficult to trust what they are telling you when you suspect they are making mistakes. They can pay for a lot of speech. Consider their new moneymaker, hydraulic fracking. Hydraulic fracturing, right? This is, this is the one where they blast a top secret, quite possibly toxic liquid into the ground, breaking up the rock and releasing natural gas. And sometimes leaving homeowners nearby with tap water they can light on fire. Or not. Back in February, the University of Texas announced the results of a new study. New study shows no evidence of groundwater contamination from hydraulic fracturing. Awesome. Sounds great. And then you learn, as the world did last week, that the lead scientist of that study also works for a fracking company in Texas. He sits on the board of a Texas fracking company, and he holds stock, and he gets a nice annual fee. Meanwhile, folks who live near fracking in Texas are waking up to brand new earthquakes in their neighborhoods. One county in Texas has experienced 11 small quakes since early June. They used to have no earthquakes ever in that Texas county, ever. Now they've got deep injection wells and they're getting enough earthquakes that the insurance companies are starting to market earthquake insurance to the homeowners there. Maybe they could ask the scientist who sits on the fracking board if the fracking is causing the quakes. As we worry over the associated calamity, when we dig and drill and blast and mine and frack this stuff out of the ground so we can set it on fire for fuel, as we marvel over just how astonishingly rich you can get if you are the one selling this stuff, the fundamental question of what the cost of it is to all of us, even when you don't spill it, even when things go as directed, the question of how much this costs all of us is, of course, a matter of huge contention and huge political fighting. And it is a matter of huge contention and huge political fighting that just changed a lot because of something that was done this weekend by our next guest. Stay tuned for the interview tonight. It's next and it is a big deal. Hold on. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. 
By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Pipeline blockade is important to me because I'm a parent, but I understand that the low-hanging fossil fuel fruit is not available anymore. It is economically unsustainable as well as environmentally unsustainable. Fossil fuel extraction in the form of Mountaintop removal, fracking, and tar sands is the environmental issue of our time. And today we are discussing the XL pipeline that's coming down from Canada. It is wrong for these companies to take advantage of the populations that live in these areas. They destroy the environment, the people that live in those environments, and it's wrong. I want to get in between what's left of this planet and fossil fuels. I want to see an escalation in our movement so that we resolve to physically stop, by whatever means necessary, the fossil fuel industries and shut them down permanently. Uh, we basically have to put ourselves and our bodies on the line so that we have a small chance, a chance, any chance, for there to be a livable planet not just for our human grandchildren, but for the grandchildren of the trees here, for the other members of our greater living community. I also don't want to see the lives and homes of these folks in East Texas and elsewhere to be destroyed by this pipeline. I really hope that we can muster the courage to be honest with ourselves about what needs to be done. This is important to me because what I do know scares me, but what I don't know scares me more. I have uh, been an activist uh, for 50 years. I'm 70. I do what I do because it's the right thing to do. And when my granddaughter asks me, Grandma, how did you let it get this way? I'm going to be able to say, sweetheart, I never stopped trying to fix it. past 30 years, the MacArthur Foundation has given what are commonly described as genius grants. You can be of any age, working in any field. There is no warning that you are even being considered. Uh, and then one day, bingo, here's $500,000. You show exceptional promise in whatever it is that you do. Go do more of it. Go do more of whatever it is you want to do with this no-strings-attached half-million bucks. The people who get a genius award each year... You know, these, the, the list of folks, when it comes out, these tend to not be very well-known people. I mean, there are exceptions, but most of the names are not names that you instantly have heard of when they win the prize. But if you look at the list, right, the further you go back in time, the more MacArthur Genius Grant names you do recognize from the old lists. And that makes sense if the Genius Award recognizes people who show great potential, right? The idea is that they will get to be famous later. This year will be the 31st year of MacArthur Genius Grants, 31 years. Our guest tonight for the interview received his MacArthur Genius Grant 30 years ago, in the second year that they were giving them out. As a professor of physics at UC Berkeley, as a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, as a multiple award-winning physicist, it was a big deal that someone as highly esteemed and accomplished as Professor Richard Muller described himself as a skeptic on the issue of climate change. He argued that there were problems in the data about global warming, and he doubted whether global warming was happening. Because of those views, it was not necessarily a surprise that when Professor Muller launched a new project to study the veracity of global warming data, his single largest private backer was the Charles G. Koch Foundation. 
Coke donation provided almost a quarter of the program's entire budget. And yes, that is Coke as in Charles and David Coke, the Coke brothers, the conservative billionaires who got that way by inheriting their father's oil and chemical company fortune. They are oil zillionaires. And while, of course, their funding of this project did not come with strings attached, frankly, the Koch brothers do fund a lot of what happens on the global warming is a hoax side of things. But Richard Mueller's latest study was an independent scientific endeavor. And its results are the opposite of in accord with its funders' political positions. When Professor Mueller was invited to testify before a House subcommittee on the environment last year, he reported there that contrary to his previous beliefs, contrary to his expectations, his preliminary analysis showed that indeed there is a global warming trend. Then six months after delivering that information to Congress, Professor Mueller declared publicly that global warming is real. And he said he was no longer skeptical of the data about which he had once voiced doubts. A new study finds global warming is real and that the science behind it is not impacted by bias, bad data, or cities that act as heat islands. The existence of global warming, I think, is pretty much beyond dispute now. I think we have closed the last remaining questions on that. Mueller's study is getting a lot of attention because it was funded in part by a foundation backed by Charles and David Koch. They are oil billionaires and climate change deniers. Today, no one can deny that extreme weather is here to stay. That was last November. That was a bombshell. Now here's another. Look at this from the New York Times this weekend. Richard Mueller writes, Call me a converted skeptic. Three years ago, I identified problems in previous climate studies that, in my mind, threw doubt on the very existence of global warming. Last year, following an intensive research effort involving a dozen scientists, I concluded that global warming was, was real and that the prior estimates of the rate of warming were correct. I'm now going a step further. Humans are almost entirely the cause. Joining us now for the interview is Professor Richard Muller of the Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Project at UC Berkeley. His new book is called Energy for Future Presidents. Professor Muller, thank you very much for your time tonight. It's nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Uh, first, let me ask, uh, as, especially as a non-scientist, if I screwed any of that up um, in explaining how you've got to this position you've just detailed in the Times. No, I think it was accurate, except for the characterization of the Koch Foundation, which always gave us a completely open hand and indicated no preference for what our uh, results would show. Fair, that's fair and smart of you to point out, and I appreciate you doing that. I do. I, I did try to insist that we, there was no implication that there was any funding, uh, s strings attached to the funding. Uh, but I think, as was noted in that NBC Nightly News report as well, the fact that they were among your, far your, your funders is part of the reason why I think your position on this, your evolution on this, has received so much attention. Do you, do you, do you see why people might put that sort of political shine on what it is that you've done? Well, I, I, we try very hard to be uh, objective and non-political. Uh, we're hoping that by doing so and, and, and sticking by the highest standards of science, that we will help cool the debate and bring together everybody. Uh, science is that small realm of knowledge on which universal agreement is possible and likely. And I'm hoping we can settle the science so the more contentious issues, what to do about it, can, can then be debated. On that point, why, in, in your words, is it important uh, to know specifically if and how much humans are the cause of, of global warming? Admitting that global warming is happening, obviously, is step one. Why is this second step so important in terms of, uh, of policy and coming up with a way to cope with this as a civilization? Well, uh, if we are at cause, we can do something about it. Uh, if we're not at cause, if it's the solar variation, which we ruled out in our in our current study, uh, then it, it, it's hopeless. We just have to wait for it to happen. But if we're causing it, uh, we can do something about it. And I personally am concerned, not with the current global warming, which I think has been quite small, but real. Uh, it's with the future global warming uh, that, that the danger lies, and we need to recognize where that's coming from and then look for a solution. What were some of the other factors uh, besides solar variation, uh, people commonly describe that as sunspots, some of the other uh, areas that you thought might have inflected the data um, in the past that you were able to rule out with this current round of research? 
Well, the, the main one uh, is uh, variation in the sun. There were volcanic eruptions which have affected the climate, and we see those very clearly. But they're short-lived. A volcanic eruption tends to cool the planet for about three years. We were concerned about effects such as El Nino and the Gulf Stream, and those cause variations too. We were able to see that, but they also tend to be short-lived. The remarkable thing was when we took those out, that the solar variation, the fingerprint of solar variation was just absent. And then we looked for the other things, we tried various different fits to it. The, the shock to me was that the carbon dioxide curve was right on. Uh, at, at that point, uh, I was I, I was very surprised. Uh, I had been I, I like to think completely open-minded, and so when we got that fit in a relatively simple way, in something that doesn't require elaborate computer programs, uh, the curve of golden of global warming simply matches that of carbon dioxide. At, at that point, my opinion finally formed. You go out of your way to say that correlation is not causation, but that this correlation is very strong, that something else needs to correlate better with the data if it is going to be an alternate hypothesis, an alternate explanation for, for, for why the temperatures have gone the way they have. Given what you see in the correlation between carbon dioxide and temperatures, do you think that the, the level of reduction we'd have to have in carbon dioxide is so great in order to affect temperature that it would have to be a global economic shock? Or would we, would we be able to reduce carbon dioxide in a way that you think could be economically sustainable but would still oh, really oh, affect temperature? I think there are two key things that we can do. Uh, one of them is a, a global effort towards energy efficiency and conservation. I think that's realistic. But the biggest thing is, and, and, and this, this will be controversial, the biggest thing is a switch away from coal and to the one thing that can replace it in the poor countries which are going to produce most of the carbon dioxide, natural gas. We have to make fracking clean so that countries such as China and India can switch. Natural gas produces one-third the carbon dioxide of coal for the same energy. Uh, if we don't do this, I don't, think, I don't think we have a chance. And if we can figure out a way to do it without it causing earthquakes and lighting our drinking water on fire, I think a lot of, uh, exactly. a lot of people I, will follow I, you I, down I, that path. I, I don't think that's hard. It requires more than $3 million fines. But clean fracking, the technology there, is something which I think is achievable, and that's something that we, we really uh, have to aim at, uh, because nothing else can be afforded by the, by the poor countries. Uh, unfortunately, China is already, by the end of this year, producing twice the carbon dioxide of the, the United States, and it's growing very, very rapidly. So we have to come up with a technology that uh, technology that can be afforded by the developing world. Professor Richard Muller of the Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Project at UC Berkeley, thank you very much uh, for joining us tonight and for being uh, populist enough in your approach to this information that you did it in an op-ed for the New York Times uh, that everybody could read. Thank you, sir. What would you call someone who insists, against the understanding of the world's scientific bodies, that the Earth is not warming but cooling? On CBS Evening News, they call him an expert. He's the network's severe weather consultant. Florida TV meteorologist David Bernard makes frequent appearances to talk about weather and climate on CBS Evening News and other CBS News shows. But in his scores of appearances in recent years, according to the Nexus News database, he has never uttered the word climate, let alone climate change or global warming. The omission makes sense once you see Bernard's Twitter feed, where he displays strong feelings about arguably the foremost scientific issue of our era. He retweets messages and plugs articles from climate change deniers, adding notes like, Sorry, global warming alarmists, the Earth is cooling. 
or to Salon.com, love Salon, but please cool the global warming mumbo-jumbo. In response to a story about U.N. fundraising efforts to offset the effects of climate damage in poor countries, Bernard tweeted, quote, This is what climate change is about, global wealth redistribution, close quote. He deleted that one afterward, and maybe viewers don't need to worry about Bernard's economic notions, but as extreme weather events become more common and devastating, CBS viewers deserve to hear those things explained by someone who isn't devoted to fringe science. Science is real. earlier that we have a massive drought across the country. The drought is now affecting 88% of the corn crop, which of course, as you know, is in like 98% of processed foods on your uh, supermarket shelves. It feeds a lot of the factory farmed animals, cows, pigs, chickens. Uh, it's going to drive up the price of food in this country, uh, probably not for a year. In the meantime, because of the heat, you've got farmers um, harvesting their crops early. They are killing more animals to get it to market sooner to reduce their herds. So you're going to see a glut at first, it's going to drive down prices, and then prices are going to shoot up 4 or 5% probably in the next year. The drought in this country is reaching levels uh, not seen in 50, 75 years now. 2012 is the hottest year ever recorded in the United States. Now, to be fair, records were only started back in 1895. And what's happening is uh, highways... Nuclear power plants, uh, electrical grids, all are suffering at this point because of the tremendous amount of stress that heat is putting on these systems. You had uh, in Washington, apparently this month, a U.S. Airways regional jet became stuck in asphalt on the tarmac because it had softened so much in the uh, 100 degree plus temperatures. A subway train in uh, Washington derailed after heat stretched the track so far that it kinked. In East Texas, heat and drought have had a startling effect on the soil under the highways and are, are leading to horrendous cracking, according to the senior research engineer with the Texas Transportation Institute, Texas A&M. In northwest, uh, uh, eastern and midwestern states, unusually high heat is causing highway sections to be, uh, expand beyond their limits, press against each other, and pop up. Bill Gossman, senior vice president and a 38 v uh, veteran at the uh, at Pepco, the Potomac uh, Electric Power Company, says we've got the storm of the century every year now. So they're talking about. Um, Billions of dollars of expense in burying above-ground uh, electrical lines. Highways are uh, falling apart, like I say. Our electrical uh, system, our entire grid is being put under pressure because, as Mark Gabriel says, senior vice president of Black & Vetch Engineering Firm, we build the system for 10% of the time that we need it. Peak usage and that peak usage is growing and expanding and happen more often. 
And so you have all of these uh, parts of uh, our infrastructure that are having to adjust to global climate change and warming in particular. And so what is the answer? Well, fortunately, these things are becoming clearer to people at a time when it's coinciding where the United States, far from being in a sovereign debt crisis, according to uh, Matt Iglesias and others I've read, frankly, for weeks now, the inflation-adjusted yield on 20-year bonds has been negative. In other words, people, institutions, other countries are paying the United States, not a lot, but a tiny bit, to hold on and borrow their money. Because it is such a safe and sound investment relative to the rest of the world. In fact, only parts of the rest of the world. Apparently, uh, there are many countries that can borrow cheaply. The Brits, Australia, Germany, France. And as Iglesias says, for a high unemployment country with low borrowing costs, which describes the United States, in fact, the borrowing costs are less than zero. The sensible idea right now is for the old-fashioned liberal one, public works. Spending on certain types of public works today, accelerated repairs of water and transportation infrastructure, say, or fixing roads, updating our electrical uh, grid, burying power lines, expanding uh, infrastructure to provide Internet to other communities, building bridges, building schools, funding schools, investing in education. Not necessarily a capital improvement, but it is when you consider that that education and these kids are going to be fueling uh, the country in the future. We should be borrowing money at less than 0% interest rates adjusted for inflation and spending it and investing it because we know it's going to pay off dividends in the future. Things like the Internet comes to mind. Things like GPS, technology, trains. I mean, everything that we have was an investment that our ancestors made via their government. And any success that we've had, any capacity to do a podcast, Any uh, ability to, I don't know, build an empire is done in the context of those investments that were made in the past. And now it is incredibly cheap to do so. We can talk about what the Fed should do or shouldn't do, but this is the number one best way to get people to work in this country, to get the economy going again. And... We have the benefit of doing it in a way that could actually be smart for global warming in the future. Invest in clean technologies. Invest in uh, public transportation. And of course, none of this will happen right now. Grab hold of the morning. Head out to the porch. Feel the wind stopping Feel the sun scorch Fear for my safety You can see it in my eyes In an hour or two We will More hyperbole on Capitol Hill. You're asking us to have unprecedentedly high uh, electricity prices in order to avoid 
uh, a danger that's not as real as it appears. Suddenly, it was climate week in the U.S. Senate. In the midst of a record national drought and on the heels of a bombshell new study this week from a prominent Koch-funded climate skeptic, finding that, quote, global warming is real and humans are almost entirely the cause... On Wednesday, in the first Senate hearing in years on the economic impacts of climate change and extreme weather, Republican anti-science deniers again insisted global warming is not happening at all. In the last 10 years, we've seen virtually no change in the temperature. However, the Democrats and actual climate scientists in the hearing disagreed. We really reached the point where the question of whether the Earth is warming is, is really no longer in doubt. There are consequences of using the atmosphere as a dump for greenhouse gases. I find it quite incredible that we're raising the question about whether global warming is a real problem. Global warming is certainly not a hoax. There's no hoax. There's no conspiracy. It was a contentious hearing. Glad to hear that there actually was one in the Senate, which is controlled by Democrats. So where have they been all this time, Des? Fighting with the Republicans, as usual. I couldn't help but notice that Chairman Barbara Boxer's end to the meeting may have said it all. Okay. Wow. It's getting harder and harder for the global warming deniers to keep denying the truth, which is right in front of our faces now. Even the Koch brothers' favorite scientist has been convinced by the data that human beings and the burning of fossil fuels are causing the Earth's temperature to dangerously heat up. July was the hottest month ever in the U.S. in the first seven months of this year, also scored a record high, as did the last 12 months. You might think this is just a fluke year. It isn't. Before this year, nine of the Earth's ten warmest years on record had occurred since 2001, and all 12 of the warmest years had occurred since 1997. You can just add this current year onto that list. And the thing of it is, scientists have been warning us about this for decades now, and their predictions have come true one after another only sooner than they thought. Record high summers? Check. Severe droughts? Check. Ruined crops? Check. Raging wildfires? Check. Massive floods? Check. Brutal hurricanes? Check. They've also warned us about inaction. And you can put a check by that one, too. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Where time itself is frozen, suspended in the air. Now the water flows on Kilimanjaro. Damaging the essence of our atmosphere. Threatens our existence, Kilimanjaro. Oh, Kilimanjaro. In this country, right now, I think we may be in a moment where something is changing along the number line uh, when a thing turns from science into business, into policy, and then ultimately into politics. It's about energy, energy production in this country, the question of whether or not we pursue certain sources of energy. It's always been defined in part by how dangerous we feel that is. Nuclear energy, for example, was a huge hit in America at one point. It was the wave of the future until Three Mile Island happened in 1974, and then the nuclear wave receded back into the sea. We haven't seen a new reactor built since. People began to feel like whatever its potential upside was, it was maybe too dangerous to be worth it to pursue more nuclear power. Part of the way that that widespread feeling like that gets established, the feeling that something isn't worth it, or, or something's at least dangerous enough to look into whether it's worth it, part of that is when you get powerful images, images like Through Mile Island, or images like this. 
a guy in Colorado who's able to set his tap water on fire because of the natural gas drilling that's happening in the area where he lives. Enough methane gas has apparently seeped into his water supply that his tap water has become flammable. That's from the movie Gasland. But what if it's not just the, the water coming out of your tap that you're able to set on fire? What if it's also puddles that are collecting on your property? This is a video of a man in northeast Pennsylvania collecting water from a, pubble, a puddle bubbling up near his house. And then he's able to light the fumes off that water on fire. State officials think a natural gas energy company drilling in the area may be responsible for stray gas getting into the groundwater that's bubbling up there. Here's what it looks like just one county over from there. This is a geyser shooting methane-infused water 30 feet into the air. That geyser is located right by three natural gas drilling wells operated apparently by Shell Oil. Images like that are the kind of thing that can have real political impact, that can, that can make the, the drilling issue less like science, less like geology, less like geology becoming business, and more like policy and politics. And sometimes it is more than just images. Okay, Timpson, Texas. Timpson, Texas. T-I-M-P-S-O-N. 10.15 local time on the morning of May 10th. In Timpson, Texas, the ground begins to shake. Timpson is in East Texas. And that morning in May, something that residents there are really, really not used to, happened. A 3.7 magnitude earthquake. East Texas has experienced a space shuttle crash, a devastating hurricane, and now add earthquake to the disasters. Seismologists first recorded the tremor around 10.15 this morning. A 3.7 earthquake was felt in portions of Shelby, Nacogdoches, and Panola counties. A 3.7 magnitude earthquake in East Texas sort of unheard of. The Timpson City Secretary told a local news station that she initially thought a nearby train had derailed. She said it shook the whole city hall for about 15 to 20 seconds. Even the experts couldn't seem to figure it out. Gary Patterson of the U.S. Geological Survey in Memphis says survey geologists are baffled by the event. He says, quote, it's not where we normally see earthquakes in Texas. It's kind of a mystery, this thing in Timpson, Texas. No injuries were reported. There was some minor damage to local buildings, but a 3.7 magnitude earthquake came and went in a place there never are earthquakes, and nobody seemed to know why. Then a week later, it happened again. For the second time in just a week, and just the fourth time since 1981, an earthquake has struck in East Texas. A little after 3 o'clock this morning, a 4.3 magnitude earthquake hit about four miles east of Timpson. The quake hit only about six miles from where last week's earthquake was reported. So in the space of just seven days, two separate earthquakes struck an area of Texas that is not known for having earthquakes. A second one, that 4.3 magnitude quake, was the strongest earthquake to hit East Texas in nearly half a century. Then three days later, it happened again. A 2.7 magnitude earthquake struck in the exact same area. A week and a half later, another one. This one clocked in as a 2.5 magnitude quake. A week after that, the ground began to shake beneath North Texas. A 2.3 magnitude earthquake struck just south of Fort Worth in the town of Cleburne. That was June 5th. Then this happened just 10 days later. 3.1 magnitude earthquake has struck an area just north of Cleburne. That's near Fort Worth. The U.S. Geological Survey says it happened just after 2 a.m. Thankfully, no damage or injuries have been reported. So at this point, areas in North and East Texas, which do not typically experience earthquakes at all, have been hit with six earthquakes in the span of about a month. That last one in Cleburne, Texas, happened on June 15th. Then on June 23rd, there was another one. On June 24th, there was another one. On June 26th, there was another one. On June 29th, there was one more. Four more earthquakes in North Texas in the span of one week. People simply telling us they've never seen anything like this before. Their houses, their businesses going through these earthquakes. And for many of them, they don't believe this is just a natural coincidence. Yeah, you think? They don't believe this is a natural coincidence. Over a span of 40 days between June and July, North Texas was rocked by an astonishing 11 separate earthquakes. But there is something really interesting about where those earthquakes were hitting. The Houston Chronicle put together this map. All the little blue markers that you see there are earthquakes that have struck North Texas since the beginning of the year. All of the little red markers are known natural gas drilling sites. Notice a pattern? 
Ever since fracking has been allowed in that part of the country, the region has seen a dramatic and unmistakable uptick in the frequency and intensity of earthquakes. In 2009, in what's called the Mid-Continent region, there were 50 earthquakes total. In 2010, that number jumped from 50 earthquakes to 87 earthquakes. In 2011, last year, that number shot from 87 earthquakes all the way up to 134 earthquakes in one year. What's the cause for this? A brand new study out this week from the University of Texas now echoes what at least three other recent studies have shown. The earthquakes in Texas may be caused by natural gas drilling in the area. Actually, not the drilling specifically, but the process of injecting the wastewater from that drilling back into the earth. The UT study found that most of the epicenters for these quakes were located within two miles of one or more wastewater injection wells. Despite all the evidence now piling up that the process of natural gas drilling may in fact not just be causing methane to creep into the water supply in places like Colorado and Texas, as if that weren't bad enough, but now also may be causing earthquakes in Texas. Despite all of that evidence, the politics around it haven't seemed to change just yet. The Texas Railroad Commission, which for some reason regulates all drilling in Texas, I don't know why either, uh, they are currently denying any link between wastewater disposal wells and earthquakes in Texas, telling the Fort Worth Weekly, quote, Commission staff have no science or data at this time linking these minor seismic events to oil field activities. At this time, no science or data. At this time, times may be changing. from Cleveland. I uh, just downloaded the new podcast. I woke up this morning. I just finished it uh, before I'm ready to start work here. And I just want to say thank you for making an exception playing that email from Cindy. That was one of the most informative and enlightening emails I think that your show has ever had. Uh, obviously, you realize that made the exception to put it on, but she put so much information out there that the average person wouldn't even know where to even begin to look to understand how our system works and uh, I'd like to thank Cindy for putting that information out there because the whole debate about centrism and voting I mean if myself included if half the people knew what Cindy knew I think we'd all be a lot further along with the battle plan about how to take this country back to common sense so uh, thanks again for the show and thanks thanks to Cindy for I mean really I think giving us all a little lesson in civics and government that uh, sadly our school systems fail and haven't taught us. So thanks a lot. Love the show, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I just played this one message today because it was representative of every message I received on the subject, whether it be voicemail or email or people posting on Facebook, thanking me for playing the message from Cindy and thanking Cindy for having called in. And so it, it went over very well. I was glad that a, you know, a very wonky, 10 minute voicemail you know was readily embraced by uh, by the listenership so um very happy for that but in in the previous episode when i played that voicemail i said that you know right up until the moment that i got that message i was preparing to completely change the conversation and so that's what i'm going to do today i want to talk a little bit about uh the book blink by malcolm gladwell i finished it a few weeks ago and there's a, a section sort of near the end that i wanted to get your reaction to and so so the the book in its entirety is basically an argument for the unconscious mind's ability to not not just be incredibly powerful but actually often more accurate than the conscious mind you know our our ability to compute uh, you know all all sorts of things and and come to all sorts of realizations and and sort information and you know grasp all these sorts of things that uh, you know our our unconscious mind comes to understandings before our conscious mind does so often it's it's a fascinating book and and so you know after this argument has been made over and over using a whole variety of really interesting examples throughout the book 
he comes to this little story where it, it, it extrapolates the entire idea from you know facial expressions that you can pick out on on someone's face and and understand more deeply what they're thinking if you could only consciously recognize those fleeting you know tiny tiny instances and extrapolates it to uh, Pearl Harbor and the whole idea of you know foreign policy and defense strategy and those sorts of things and so this is Malcolm Gladwell in his book Blink and it's towards the end of the book so this is him I'm reading I recently ran across a marvelous book by the historian Roberta Holstetter called Pearl Harbor Warning and Decision At Pearl Harbor, the American intelligence community was taken completely by surprise by the Japanese military. But as Holstetter points out, that wasn't because the American military didn't know enough about Japan's intentions. On the contrary, it knew an enormous amount. The U.S. military had, in fact, broken many of the key Japanese codes. They were reading the Japanese military's mail. And that, she argues, was the problem. The military's analysts were overwhelmed with information. They would come in in the morning, and there would be a stack of reports in their inboxes a foot high. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. Meanwhile, who did the best in predicting what the Japanese were up to in the summer and fall of 1941? Journalists. If all you had done was read the New York Times, you would have been in a better position to understand Japan's intentions than if you had had access to all of the military's secret reports. That's not because journalists knew more about Japan. It's because they knew less. They had the ability to sort through what they knew and find a pattern. I read Holstetter's book right around the time that all of the 9-11 postmortems were being conducted. Everyone in Congress was standing up and complaining that the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA didn't know enough about terrorist activity and proposing that we needed to expand and strengthen our intelligence-gathering capability. Really? All I could think of was Pearl Harbor. The key to good decision-making is not knowledge, it's understanding. We are swimming in the former, we are desperately lacking in the latter. So that's the section I want to read. I'll withhold comments for now, I'd actually rather hear from you. I I mean, my comment is the fact that I pulled it out of the book and read it to you. Uh, It's not a particularly original idea, this has been talked about in at least in progressive circles for years now about uh, as sort of a counter argument to the taking away of civil liberties and the overreaching of the federal government in terms of their you know anti-terrorism strategies that involve reading all of our emails and listening to phone calls and things like that so if you have an interesting insight on this, if you've read the book Blink, I mean like a third of the people who I talk to about it have actually read it. It's a pretty popular book. So if you've read it, if you have insights on this, uh, thoughts you'd like to add, that number to call again, 206-202-3410. And that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone uh, for listening, especially thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. Uh, all of that can be done through the website, and it is absolutely how the show survives. I cannot thank you guys enough. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of the individual clips that you particularly like through your social networks. That can also be done through the website itself. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com